Because we shape our understanding of the other in these terms, when we actually come maybe face to face with the other, you know, in terms of, say, refugee resettlement, we can't see beyond that helpless suffering victim. So if somebody has got an iPhone or is dressed really well or, you know, they can't be a refugee because refugees are only, you know, destitute, helpless, poor. Kia ora and welcome to a Coalesce Produced Project, PhD Unpacked, a podcast where we make PhD research more accessible by interviewing the authors. I'm Kimberly, and I'll be the narrator. Today we're joined by the wonderful Dr. Natalie Slade, PhD alumnus of Tekuninga Kipurehuroa Massey University. Natalie currently works as a senior advisor for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade in research and evaluation. She has extensive experience in print media, having held photography and photography editing roles with the New Zealand Herald, the Dominion Post, and the Sunday Times in Perth. You'll hear my voice weaving in and out of the episode to give some context at different parts of the discussion. But for now, I'll leave you with James, our host, chatting to Natalie about why she chose to do this particular PhD. Before we get into your research, can you tell us briefly how and why you ended up writing this PhD specifically? Representation in the media is something I've always been interested in. Um, when I was working as a photojournalist, um, it was something that always concerned me, that power imbalance between me taking photos of people, sometimes, you know, people in um, marginalised communities um, and how they were represented in the media. Uh, yeah, it was something that bothered me for a long, long time. And um, and so after being in the media for about 10 years, I decided I um, needed to take a break. I wanted to do something different. And I had actually been to Cambodia to do some photos for a New Zealand-based charity called the Cambodia Charitable Trust. And it was the first time that I had been, I guess, in what you would call a developing country. Um, and I noticed there was a lot of international um, NGOs, non-government organisations, uh, based in Cambodia, and I was really curious about the work that they did. Uh, so when I came back to New Zealand from that trip, I was still working in the media at the time, and I um, decided to find out more about international development. And so I enrolled in a couple of papers at Massey, uh, distance learning, just to, yeah, I was curious, just to find out more. And I loved it. And so I ended up doing uh, a postgraduate diploma um, and then just settled somehow on doing a PhD. I kind of landed in it. Um, quite by accident, I guess. And so I thought, great opportunity to um, do something that was media-focused, that drew on the skills that I had, um, the knowledge I had, but also looking at uh, media representations from a development angle. When I first started, I was really curious to look at the Australian media. I had been working in the Australian media for six years um, before coming back to New Zealand in 2008. Um, and I had always been... Um, curious about the way asylum seekers were represented in the Australian media. Um, it was a very yeah, negative representation. Um, and But I had noticed over time, um, being in New Zealand and still interested in what was going on in Australia and the media, seeing that narrative shift um, with the change of governments over the years. Uh, so I initially, yeah, in 2015, when I put my proposal in uh, to start the PhD, 
I was initially going to focus on Australian media to see how that had changed over time and why, and if that had made a difference to people who were seeking asylum. But then in 2015, I don't know if everyone can cast their minds back, but the, I guess the so-called Syrian or European refugee crisis kind of hit our screens. Um, and the conversation here in New Zealand changed quite dramatically from not really being spoken about to all of a sudden on our screens nightly, in our newspapers daily around the Syrian crisis and what New Zealand was doing in response to that. And I really noticed a change in the way uh, refugees were being spoken about here in New Zealand, how they were being represented. And I thought it was great timing for me, I guess, because I was just about to embark on my PhD. But I decided I was based in New Zealand. You know, I'd worked in the New Zealand media. It was a New Zealand topic, you know, so let's do that. Let's focus on that. Kimberly here. Something to mention before we go any deeper into the PhD. Natalie's research interacts with a very specific historical context, which I think we should recap briefly. In late 2010 and early 2011, a significant wave of anti-government protests and uprisings broke out in Middle Eastern and North African countries. Often labelled as the Arab Spring, these uprisings continued throughout the 2010s, leading to a substantial refugee crisis as millions of displaced people, particularly Syrians as a result of the Syrian civil war, fled their homes, traveling towards neighboring countries and as far as Europe to seek safety and refuge from their war-torn communities. As Natalie began to embark on her PhD journey, the landscape of media responses to the ongoing refugee crisis continued to grow, providing a broad spectrum of articles and media coverage to analyze. For her research methodology, Natalie ultimately selected 76 articles as a data set for how the media portrayed refugees, as well as conducting interviews with both former refugees and refugee advocates in order to get first-hand accounts of their experiences. But we begin by focusing on media representations, and we'll jump back in with Natalie discussing how the media typically portrays refugees. Yeah, so I guess maybe a good place to start is, is the literature around refugee representation in the media. So the literature says that refugees are usually represented either as a security threat, a threat to our way of life, um, and it's called the securitization of asylum, um, or they're represented um, as victims, so a humanitarian, humanitarian angle about, you know, this is tragic, we must help them, Within those representations, refugees are always homogenised as this one-dimensional representation of a refugee. And where that word refugeeness comes from is from um, Lisa Malky, who talks about the construction of refugeeness. So refugees are represented in this one-dimensional, stereotypical way of who is a refugee and then feeding into who is considered a real refugee worthy of our compassion or our help. The final piece of Natalie's methodology was the idea of using critical discourse analysis, essentially studying language in relation to social context, exploring ideologies and power dynamics that become embedded in discourse, the way we talk about things. Natalie goes into a bit more detail. Critical discourse analysis is a, is a method, it's a social constructionist method for those in the social sciences may be familiar with that term. But it looks at how we construct knowledge, how we construct the world around us, and also um, it, it 
that particular method tied in quite nicely to my chosen um, theoretical framework looking at um, post-development and post-humanitarianism, which again looks at these, this knowledge power nexus around how we construct the world, how we view the world, how we come to understand the world. So for me, it was a natural method that fit into how I, the theoretical lens that I was then going to use to analyse the information I was collecting. Coming from a journalism background, I wanted to cover all angles. Like I wanted it to be fair, balanced reporting, you could you could call it. Um, and so when I talk about insider-outsider research, insider being I come from the media, I come from a media background, that is where I'm familiar with, my expertise is in, and so I felt very comfortable. It was a natural fit for me to analyse the media, but I, I felt that, yes, that's something I could speak to. But because I wanted to get all sides of the story, so to speak, because I was talking about this idea of representation and I wanted to know what people from refugee backgrounds thought about the way the media represented this this idea of refugee, you know, using that refugee label, how people, how that um, identity was constructed in the media, how people were being represented. But because I was talking about it from, critiquing it from this power and knowledge imbalance that, so post-development, so going back, post-development talks about this idea of development as discourse and that it's a very top-down way of talking about development. The West knows best, the West comes in as saviour, the West will rescue the so-called developing world and develop it. And, and developing actors within that discourse are usually represented in a way that is very um, one-dimensional, one-sided, stereotypical, um, homogenizing, negative a, a lot of the times um, when you think about, I guess, humanitarian campaigns and you know, the fly in the eye kind of imagery, starving children. It can be, it tears on the heartstrings. It can be really emotive and they do that on purpose because they want people to support and donate to campaigns, right? It's a similar way, I guess, in refugee advocacy work where refugees are portrayed in that victim stereotype because they want people in the West to support refugee resettlement, raising the quota, um, that that. They're just like us, you know, this is unfair, we should be helping these people. Um, but because I'm from the West myself, and when we talk about my positionality as a Pākehā, you know, um, a middle-class Pākehā New Zealander, I've never, I don't know what it's like to, to be a refugee, to have to flee your home, to make those really hard decisions to come to another country, to start again, to, you know, learn a new language. Um, maybe sacrifice my career, you know, um, for my children. Who was I to interview people from refugee backgrounds about their stories? But I felt that if I didn't, I was actually perpetuating this idea of representation where I was the one speaking on behalf of, whereas I wanted to know what they thought. So <laughs> I guess it's in a very convoluted way of saying there was a lot of tension in my process about who was I to talk to people about their experiences when I had never, I don't know what it's like myself, would I be speaking on behalf of others? The very thing that I was critiquing in my thesis, 
But if I didn't give them the op- if I didn't kind of give the opportunity to to get that side of the story, I felt like I was being very one sided in my research. So it was really really tricky for me, and and ethically something that I grappled with all the way through my PhD. Um, you know, and, and I wanted to know what refugee advocates thought. Did they did they grapple with the same tension or ethical dilemmas? Um, and it was interesting, you know, obviously we might, we'll probably talk about that later, but interesting what they had to say about that too. Natalie's background in journalism is rooted in a professional history of photography. Her experience as a photographer within a journalism context is important to note because photography is so crucial to understanding media portrayals of refugees in the mid-2010s. And one photo in particular, taken on September the 2nd, 2015, dominated news coverage of the refugee crisis. The photo of two-year-old Syrian boy Alan Kurdi, who drowned in the Mediterranean Sea, attempting to sail to Greece from Turkey. That photo of Alan Kurdi, the, the toddler who, you know, sadly washed up on the shore in Turkey and became this defining image of the refugee crisis um, and really changed the tone of how that was being reported, not just in New Zealand, but overseas media too. Um, and, and it went from this, I guess, conversation about keeping people out to actually welcoming people. And that idea of hospitality and humanitarianism and that image of Alan Kurdi changed the narrative completely and it had a global reaction. And so here in New Zealand that really kicked off the conversations around, you know, our refugee resettlement program and our quota. And I don't know if listeners remember the Double the Quota campaign, but in 2015 and into 2016 there was huge um, media coverage of what New Zealand was doing in that space and how we could help and how we could raise our refugee quota and welcome more people here to New Zealand. So it was a specific time in history, I guess. And I and I used that specific photo and uh, the month after that um, to frame my media analysis. I guess photography can, at its very best, connect everyone around the world with a place and a time that they would otherwise not necessarily be able to connect with. I mean, written media has been around for even longer than photography and I guess photography and visual media. I mean, now so much journalism is video, you know, we have that technological benefit, but photography can connect someone from an other side of the world with something that they won't necessarily get to see with their own eyes. I guess uh, the flip side of that coin is, is when we think about uh, media representation and the stories that are c- created, part of your discourse is, is thinking about the problematic nature of mm. media coverage. And you use this fantastic phrase within your PhD that uh, the media is the machinery of representation, which I find fascinating. And as we think about photography and the media generally and the media's influence over people who consume the news through media sources, there are a lot of questions to ask about how they shape the image of refugees and the purpose that such journalism serves. And, and you write about this idea of the colonialization of compassion. You speak about the power of the Western world to, I guess, take on this role of, of saviors uh, mm. as we think about issues relating to refugees. I wondered if you could speak about these, these notions that you've touched on previously about us and them and yeah. the post-humanitarian 
disposition orientated around the self, what you were touching about yeah. before, how there's some there's some things to consider about what the media does in relation to placing us versus them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the media is a very powerful um, platform, right? Um, if you don't know anything about refugees, you've never met one, um, you know, someone from, comes from a refugee background, you don't know what it's like. We live in New Zealand. We're so far away from, you know, um, civil wars that are happening around the rest of the world. A lot of people get their information through the media. I mean, I won't go into the fake news kind of, you know, development in recent years, but, you know... Um, People consume media, and so how media represent these issues is really, really important. So when you come back to that power knowledge, construction of knowledge, um, that if if refugees are only represented as these helpless victims who, you know, the photographs are people crying and really upset and, um, you know, maybe on the shores of Greece, have just got off a boat, you know, they uh, distraught, you know, that visual imagery is super powerful and it connects, I guess, on a human level. It's hard not to see photos like that and feel nothing. And then coupled with how refugees are talked about, so how photos are captioned, how the how the news headlines are written, who has been interviewed in stories, who's speaking versus who is not speaking, you know, that can really shape the way we view the world and view, in this particular case, refugees. So if if we're not getting a well-rounded um, representation, so for instance, if the media are only focusing on uh, the trauma that people have gone through in their in their quest for asylum, um, and then coming here to New Zealand, and they, we don't know anything about that person's life. You know, where they've come from, who were they before they had to flee their homeland? Um, what are their hopes and dreams, aspirations um, for resettling here in New Zealand? If we don't, if we only hear from, um, you know, people who are who are speaking on behalf of refugees, so NGOs, refugee advocates, politicians, you know, we get a very one-sided view on who is a refugee, how can we help, and and actually what what people who come here to resettle are capable of, their strengths, you know, their dreams. So this idea of solidarity um, stems from um, post-humanitarianism and this idea that distant suffering, we, we perceive distant suffering generally through the media and how can we help? But because we naturally are emotionally drawn to distant suffering it actually becomes well the criticism is it actually becomes more about us and how we can help the other and so this othering process goes on you know we don't know anything about these group of people who are suffering but because we're nice people we're good people we want to help you know we may donate to a charity or you know, we sign up to the Red Cross Refugee Resettlement Program as a volunteer, but it detaches us from people as being people. And so we get this, I guess, stereotypical idea of this, of suffering and how we should help. It's, it comes from a place of pity, empathy, which is not a terrible thing in itself, right? Because we're human. 
but it actually becomes very stigmatizing for those that we want to help because we don't see them as anything but these helpless, tragic victims that need to be saved by us. So it comes more about us and helping rather than actually, I guess, I a more a justice focus that actually these people are suffering, but they're suffering for a reason because of maybe structural inequalities or, or war that's of not of their choosing. You know, so instead of looking at it from a justice angle, we tend to look at it from this very pity angle. And continuing on her point, we pick up with Natalie talking about how refugee-centred organisations represent refugees and how that impacts the discourse and images we're presented with. Yeah, going back, I guess, to post-development and the representation of development subjects, and I put quotation marks there, that really sets up that binary between us and them. And so the way the Western world, I guess, or uh, you know, international development agencies tend to be Western agencies, um, you know, um, so-called developed countries, first world countries, um, these are some terms that are bandied around in, in international development um, thought. They're generally representing the other. So for an argument for why we should intervene, why we need to help, within that uh, power dynamic, I guess you could call it, is where media as a, as a machinery, a representation comes into play because that's a way, you know, a lot of international development agencies, um, you know, communicate about the work. Or if, you know, media coverage of a civil war, people fleeing across borders, um, you see that all the time. Um, and it's important work to document what's going on in the world, but it really does set up this binary dynamic between us and them in terms of we, us, are the consumers of, of that imagery um, or reading about it in the newspaper, seeing it on the TV news at night, if people still do that, um, or on social media. We are consuming that and creating an idea of them, them being those people on, on the other side of the world, that distant suffering, we don't know them, we're not related. It's hard for us to comprehend what people might be going through, but it sets up this binary between us and them. Us as being, we need to do something, we need to help, we need to save them, and them being the poor, helpless victims that we need to save. And if I can just briefly touch on, you know, the implications of that representation, because we shape our understanding of the other in these terms, when we actually come maybe face-to-face with the other, you know, in terms of, say, refugee resettlement, we can't see beyond that helpless suffering victim so if somebody has got an iPhone or is dressed really well or you know they can't be a refugee because refugees are only you know destitute helpless poor you know they can't possibly be a refugee if they have like an iPhone and and there was a lot of discussion going on in the media in the comments section during the Syrian, you know, refugee crisis or European refugee crisis, however you'd like to frame it, when people were turning up on in Greece, you know, having done what would I would have thought of being the most awful journey to get there, and then taking selfies on the beach, you know, WhatsApping their, you know, maybe family that are still left in Turkey or in Syria, going, I've arrived, I'm alive, you know, and so, and there was really criticism about, oh, they can't be real refugees if they've got smartphones, like. Well, what does a real refugee look like? 
But we have these ideas of what a real refugee looks like. So getting back to that idea of refugeeness, because of the media that we consume and the way refugees are normatively betrayed as these helpless victims. And this leads us into a really interesting delineation that how we, the Western world, respond to the plight of refugees. And, and you speak in your research about these these two different types of, of solidarity yeah. that surround this, this kind of keyword pity that you've mentioned before. And these two, two words are charity and justice. Can you explain the difference between the two, between charity and justice, in terms of how we respond to the plight of refugees, how those two words are actually quite different in terms yeah. of outlining the the response to uh, refugees generally and how that reflects, I guess, pity as a, as a problematic motivating factor, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, as I said, we're human beings. We react emotionally to images of distress, people in need. Um, you know, we're not heartless people, right? We want to help. Um, and that's all well and good, you know, and I think uh, this idea of charity, like donating to charity, I mean, NGOs need funds in order to help, you know, the very people that we're, you know, seeing in distress. Um, but it, it it's very, um, I guess, restrictive in, in terms of we're not questioning why people are in suffering, why people are in distress. We just say we'll donate money and that be the end of it. And then, of course, if people have the audacity to um, show any kind of agency and and maybe want to rescue themselves or have a smartphone or, you know, make their own way to Germany, as we saw, um, you know, in, in the news in 2015, that mass exodus across um, across Europe, rather than be waiting to be saved, you know, on the borders, you know, of, of crisis. Um, we, we're kind of outraged, like, so it goes from this pity to how dare you, you know, try and do something for yourself. But if we were to come from it from a point of justice, then we're actually saying what these people are going through is terrible, it's wrong, we want to help. But actually we need to be working together. We need to um, be lifting up the voices of people who are going through this really traumatic um, time in their life who are in distress, but not stereotype them as these helpless victims. We need to actually be advocating together and actually questioning some of these structural injustices that see a person being displaced from their home country. I mean, people don't want to be a refugee. You know, people want to be able to go home um, eventually. You know, the majority of the world's refugees end up just crossing the border, right? So that's why Turkey... uh, Hosts, oh, I haven't looked at the recent numbers, but over three million Syrian refugees. That's why Lebanon is still hosting Palestinian refugees. People don't give up on the idea of wanting to go home. Actually, going to Europe, getting on a boat to cross the Mediterranean—you know, dangerous journey where thousands have drowned—and then walking from Greece all the way through to Germany to seek asylum—it's not people's first choice. So, if we were to be actually uh, advocating um, for our governments to be doing something. Actually, you need to be talking to the UN Security Council about what's happening or we need to be protesting this or we need to be, you know, working with these refugee communities to help them solve, t- together solve those problems. Now, that's coming from an idea of justice. 
that this isn't right, it's a human right, and you know we need to be responding in that way rather than a very pity, empathetic, charitable way, which is not wrong in itself, but is very limited in what it can do, really, because you can anyone can donate money to a charity and that be the end of it, and then you don't have to be bothered by it again. But that doesn't solve any of the world's problems. I mean, it's this it's this grey area where you can recognise that two truths can exist at the same time. At charity can absolutely serve a, a purpose, and yeah. donations to charities and NGOs can absolutely be helpful. And yet, we can also consider other, you know versions of of support that exist more in that justice sphere and ultimately in your phd you sort of arrive at this this idea of agnostic solidarity as being really uh, an important way of thinking about this and you said before about this idea of working with working yeah. alongside and that kind of draws us full circle into your, your phd and and the element of your phd in terms of Speaking to former resettled refugees in New Zealand and refugee advocates, could you explain agnostic solidarity as kind of a, an idea sort of down that justice lens of, of when, when we're thinking about uh, the suffering of others, it is not just about trying, it's trying to step past how does that make us feel? Yeah. It's, it's about uh, the fellow human beings and responding accordingly and hearing their voices, seeing them as individuals with agency uh, and I guess uh, proverbially sort of putting a microphone in front of them, getting their voices and, and hearing what would be helpful to them. Yeah, Can you touch on that agnostic solidarity idea? Yeah, I guess it's 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 moving, like you say, beyond that initially how, how uh, these images affect us, you know, um, these um, visuals of distant suffering affect how we feel and how might – um, prompt us to act like in a way like donate money or donate our time to a charity or um, and actually moving beyond the initial how this makes me feel and actually I feel good by doing something like donating money but actually moving beyond that and actually working with those who are going through this so if people you know like for instance you saw this quite a lot in Germany with the refugees welcome solidarity movement that there was a lot of Advocacy, um, advocacy and activism that happened in those spaces of charity but moved beyond charity and into people who came to ended up being resettled in Germany working with them to well how do you want to be you know well how do you want this to run what is your story actually instead of me talking for you you can talk for yourself I mean you know I shouldn't be talking about a situation I know nothing about Let's put your for, your voices forward and in front, rather than privileging my voice. Um, you're working together for solutions to problems. Um, for instance, if people are having problems resettling, having problems with agencies, having problems uh, with housing, you know, hey, hey, how can I help you? How can we work together to solve that problem? Rather than, oh, you poor thing. No, let me go and do that for you. You know, it's this idea of, um, yeah, nothing about us without nothing about us without us. How good is Natalie Wright? She's crushing it, and so have the rest of the PhD Unpacked team for the past couple years. Do you see what I did there? You see how I wound it in and then I brought it back like that? Yeah, you like that? Why did I leave a pause? That was kind of embarrassing because I was waiting for some form of response, even though you can't respond to me. But, anyways. 
Thank you so much for listening to the episode so far. I hope you're thoroughly enjoying it. If you'd like to support the PhD Impact team and help us interview further authors and complete further seasons, then head to patreon.com slash phdunpacked. That's patreon.com slash phdunpacked. The link will be in the bio. Thank you very much for listening. I'll drop you back in the episode now. So with all this in mind, let's let's turn to the New Zealand context. And you have three key research questions in your mm. PhD, which I'll rattle through quickly. Number one, how are refugees and refugee issues represented in the New Zealand mainstream news media? Number two, what is the relationship between refugee representation, notions of solidarity and welcome, and New Zealand national identity with regard to refugee resettlement and refugee quota? Number three, how do people from refugee backgrounds in New Zealand experience, contest, and construct space of identity and belonging within these mediated discourses? For the sake of brevity, I hope you don't mind if, if I lump question one and two to, yeah. together as yeah. a part A and a part B. What were your your general findings about refugee issues being represented in mainstream news in New Zealand? So largely, uh, the media representations fell into that humanitarian um, representation. And so, uh, interestingly, the photos that accompanied a lot of the media articles, opinion pieces, editorials, were from overseas. So they were from what was happening in Europe at the time. Because the media were fully in support of New Zealand doing something to help the Syrian refugees, um, there was a there was a lot of very emotive language that was used. So people were described as you know these very distressing scenes, tragic, helpless, hopeless. You know these are kinds of, and and they were used to make a point about New Zealand is not doing enough. What are we doing? Come on, government, you need to actually respond to this. And so it was a lot of shaming going on. Um, and, you know, it was the national government at the time. Um, they had initially um, not refused, but they weren't going to raise the quota because there was a whole discussion about we should be raising our quota. The quota hasn't changed in 30-odd years. You know, we're actually going backwards. And there was lots of comparisons of New Zealand with the rest of the world and, you know, countries that had resettlement programs and we weren't doing enough. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was very emotive. It was very shaming on the government of the, of the day. And um, refugees within that representation were very much described as these helpless, hopeless victims that we needed to save. That was generally how it went down. And look, you know, compared to other media that represented refugees as a security threat and we must stop them, we must close our borders, they're dangerous, they're potential terrorists, we don't know who they are, there's lots of men, you know. There was some awful things in Europe you know, about uh, the Syrian refugees and other refugees that um, who kind of joined, I guess, the um, exodus into Europe. Um, yeah, at least the New Zealand media didn't do that. But generally speaking, there were very few um, people from refugee backgrounds, like people who had resettled in New Zealand, who were interviewed for stories. Um, there were a lot of, I guess, experts, <laughs> in quoted commas, um, talking on behalf of refugees in general. Um, yeah, the, the, the people, the times where people from refugee backgrounds were interviewed, a lot of the stories very much focused on their trauma. Or the other, um, uh, the other theme, I guess, that came out was was what refugees had contributed to New Zealand. So it was kind of this benefit to New Zealand society versus 
traumatized people that we need to save and help and, and because aren't we wonderful um so i guess going into that second part of the question about what does that what does that say about new zealand so this this argument for we must save them because we are good people we are a humanitarian country it is the kiwi way it's who we are as people so it really much fed into this idea of new zealand national identity and who we are you know, what is our metal of a people? Yeah. And so the third research question regarding the experiences of people from refugee backgrounds in New Zealand in as small or large depth as, as you want to go into, the key findings from your interviews um, that the people you spoke to, the things that you think are most important to translate to to us, to the audience about what you found from from speaking to those people what were the most important things that you think are important to to share yeah well i think you know the the um negative consequence i guess of humanitarian portrayals of refugees that on the one hand you know it's great that new zealand wants to support refugees by and large you know um and and people were very supportive of raising the quota um, and yeah, media was not subtle in its condemnation of this seemingly inaction of the government, you know, at the time. But because it positions refugees in this very one-dimensional, stereotypical way, and often highlights the trauma, um, you people get labelled a certain way. And I guess from from those who I spoke to from refugee backgrounds, they did feel that it really um, hindered their ability and, and ability of others that they, they knew who'd come in on the resettlement program to resettle well in New Zealand, to feel like they belonged here, to feel that actually they are New Zealanders. Well, they themselves saw themselves as New Zealanders. Why wouldn't they? You know, um, you know, technically when a refugee comes, you know, to New Zealand or is resettled in New Zealand, they're no longer a refugee. That That's a legal, you know, construct, right? they come in as permanent New Zealand residences and then I can apply for citizenship, you know, after five years. So they very much saw themselves as New Zealanders. But because refugees are positioned in, in the media in this very one-dimensional way, they felt that when they would talk to people and if people found out that they came from a refugee background, it's almost like people saw them in a different way, didn't quite see them as being just ordinary New Zealanders. It's like there was some sort of deficiency or they you know, oh, how come you can afford a MacBook or how can how come you can afford to send money overseas to your family? You're a refugee, aren't you? There was lots of stories of that not really feeling ex- wholly accepted. And even people who had been here for 10 or so years still encountered that every now and again, right? And so that is the implication from these representations. On the one hand, great that we're supportive, but the negative implication is it can be very... Um, negative for for people who who are trying to resettle here well and integrate into New Zealand society the best they can. But in saying that, you know, people that I spoke to, you know, were very clear about who they were and how they wanted to be seen and how they constructed their own identity. And so for some people really rejected the refugee label because I asked people, well, what does that word even mean to you? Do you you associate with it? You know, do you hate it? Do you not care? You know, how do you feel about that word? And I was really surprised by the amount of people who said, no, that's part of my identity. That's part of who I am. It's part of the reason why I'm here in New Zealand. I see that 
um, word as as representing, you know, strength, survival. There's power in that word. You know, I'm here because I survived, you know, and I've made something of myself here. So there was a really strong sense of agency in how people chose to use or not use that word, identify or not, but also how they chose to see themselves and how they chose to 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 ask others to see them um, in various different ways. Um, and so I guess it goes back to, you know, uh, and added a bit to my theoretical framework about actor-oriented, you know, theory where the idea that, yes, you can be labelled, but it doesn't mean that you're labelled forever or that you can't transform, contest, reconstruct that representation. Yes, words are powerful and words have meaning and the media does have power to construct, but people also have agency to contest those representations and and um and transform them. And so I guess that's really, I guess my powerful message here is we may see people in a certain way, you know, regardless not just the way refugees are represented in the media, the way anyone is represented in the media. And I guess the the take-home lesson is if you're advocating, if you're a refugee advocate, um, or you work in the media and you are interviewing or or wanting to work with people from refugee backgrounds. Actually ask them how they would like to be represented, how they would like um, to speak, you know, um, give them their option, you know. You know, some people from from refugee advocates that I spoke to felt that they, because of their privileged position in society as a Pākehā, as a media commentator, um, you know, they had a platform and they should use it. They kind of had a responsibility to use it. And, and and also it's true that not everyone from a refugee background wants to be visible, wants to be seen in the media, wants to speak up. You know, people just want to get on with their lives, you know. Uh, and, and But the, I guess the key is have you got permission from people from refugee backgrounds and from those communities to speak on their behalf? And if you don't, why don't you have that permission? And, and, and as... Um, uh, one of the people I interviewed from um, Aotearoa um, Refugee, oh no, sorry, Aotearoa Resettlement Community Coalition said, who are you to be speaking about us? You know, nothing about us without us. You know, stories are powerful, yes, but let us speak, you know? And I think that's key. A big thank you to Natalie for coming onto PhD Unpacked and having a chat with us. If you're looking to learn more, you can have a read of Natalie's PhD, which can be found in the bio for this episode. On the next episode of PhD Unpacked, we talk to Dr. John Kerr about his PhD, Why Do We Argue About Science? Exploring the psychological antecedents of rejection of science. What we find is, yeah, people who follow um, the National Party and the ACT Party accounts were more likely to follow climate change denial accounts and anti-vaccination accounts. And that's something that was interesting because People often think of anti-vaxxers, at least, you know, I think that landscape has changed a bit in the last few years, but people often think of anti-vaxxers as more left-wing, sort of hippies. Um, But it actually tends to be people more politically on the right. To keep up with the various podcasts and projects that Coalesce are producing, head to at CoalesceNZ on Instagram. And for more from us, it's at PhD Unpacked on Instagram. Before I go... Big love to Wellington Access Radio for the interview spot. Thank you for listening. Ma te wa.